One of God's greatest gifts to us, apart from his son, is his word that reveals to us who he is, that reveals to us ultimately who we are and our need for him. It reveals to us the deliverance, the freedom, the salvation that he has won for us through his son. And it reveals to us our hope of glory. His greatest gift to us is his word. And he intends for you and I to be shaped to be cultivated, to be formed, to be molded as we engage with him daily in his word and our hearts are formed and shaped into the image and likeness of his son. Can you imagine just for a moment uh, a local church like this five, ten years down the road whose people together in a unified way have been meeting with God on a daily basis in his word for the purpose of responding to him and worshiping him as he's revealed himself. Imagine the fruit and the lives of the people that called this place home if daily worship was a reality for all of us. When I say all of us, and I I encourage you to come on Tuesday night, I'm meaning high school students, middle school students, Elementary school students, this is for you, parents. This community Bible reading as we're teaching it and trying to see it cultivated into the lives of this church. It's for our families. It is a fantastic way of being able to introduce your children to God's word and to how to worship God in and through his word. So, so bring them. And if you feel like your littlest ones are a hindrance to you being able to come on Tuesday night, we have childcare. So as you look at the RSVP and you look at the information in the, on the site or in the guide, <clears throat> Let us know if you need it. Let us know how many kids you're bringing and how much childcare you need, and we'll have it. So I want to encourage you to do that because as God shapes us individually and together through his word, our hearts and our lives reflect the kind of worship that he created us for and the kind of worship that he deserves. Last week, if you were with us, you might remember that we spent some time at the beginning looking at the fact that God made us. He hardwired us. He created us to be worshipers. It's part of what it means to be human. He made us to be continuously outpouring, continuously pouring out praise, hope, confidence, faith, worship, and that outpouring of Worship was meant to be directed towards him for who he is and and what he has done. Our lives would be living reflections of that pouring out to him. He made us to be shaped and satisfied in him every day. We'll talk about it a little bit on Tuesday. He hardwired us to wake up every single morning internally craving that satisfaction that can only come from him. This is how he made us. And the reality that we looked at last week was that this shaping and this satisfaction, it's going to come through him as he's revealed himself to us in his word or it's going to come from somewhere else. We're going to be shaped every single day by his voice, by his revelation, or another voice will shape us and satisfy us. He will shape us or we will seek to try to shape him into what seems right in our own eyes. That's what we looked at last week, and we talked about that last week under the heading of respectable idolatry. This misdirected 
outpouring of worship in our lives when rather than responding to God as he reveals himself to us, rather than being shaped by his revelation to us, in particularly through his word and through his son, we seek in our hearts to reshape him, to form off and to shave off contours of his revealed character and his revealed will into what seems better suited to satisfy us in our own eyes. We called that misdirected worship respectable idolatry. And this morning, we're going to continue to look at that same thing as we pick up the story in Judges chapter 17, where we left off last week. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to to operate on this text in a way that we go to a doctor and a doctor will take our blood and he'll run our blood through a series of tests looking for markers in our blood. Markers of an internal illness or disease that left unchecked will destroy us from the inside out. Things can look great on the outside, but when a doctor sees these markers in the blood, he knows there's, there's something foul afoot in the body, and you've got to deal with it. So this morning, we're going to look at this text and continue this story, and we're going to look for the markers of respectable idolatry. What's consistent in this that we might be able to recognize it and that we might be able to see it in contrast with the salvation and the grace that God's offered to us through his Son? that we might be shaped by him rather than trying to shape him into what seems right in our own eyes. So if you've got your Bibles, Judges chapter 17, we're going to pick up there where we left off in verse 7. We're going to meet some new characters in the story, but we're going to see some consistent things with all of them. Chapter 17, verse 7, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. We met Micah in his house last week. So this Levite wandering around finds himself in Micah's house. And Micah says to him, verse 9, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Now, he had a place. And now he's wandering looking for a different one. Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man and the young man became to him one of his sons. Micah ordained the Levite and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, verse 13, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Now we're going to keep going. Chapter 18. Same story. We just have these interesting number divisions in the Bible. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the Levite had a home, but he was looking for a different one. Dan doesn't think he was ever given one. So he's looking for one of his own. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go, explore the land. And so those five men, they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and they lodged there. So now we've got Micah in his household, Micah and the Levite, and now Micah's got these men of Dan here in his house. In verse 3, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they hear something that sounds familiar to them. And they're going to check it out. They turned aside and they said to this young Levite, who brought you here? 
What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? They, they heard in his voice that he wasn't from this part of town. They could hear it in the way he was speaking and what it sounded like. It sounded familiar to them, and they wanted to inquire what was going on. So verse 4, this Levite said to those spies of the Dan tribe, this is how Micah has dealt with me. He's hired me, and I've become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please that we may know whether the journey on which we're setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Now we're going to stop there for just a moment. And if we take the story of Micah and his house, as we've already seen it, the story of the Levite as we have now met him, and the story of the Danites together, what kind of markers, what kind of things can we see consistent through the story so far that would give the indication that something is amiss on the inside? That this tolerable idolatry, this the shaping of God to fit what seems right in your own eyes is happening with Micah and his house, with the Levite and even the Danites themselves. The first marker that we will see that's consistent through the story, and if you were with us last week, we kind of touched on it a bit. We'll unpack it a bit more this morning. The first marker is an unwillingness to receive and respond to God's word. An unwillingness to receive, to surrender, to respond to God's word. You can say it this way, an unwillingness to be shaped by the word of God as God has revealed it to his people. We saw it a bit last week with Micah. God had been clear to his people who he is, what he's like, and how he is to be worshiped. And we saw how Micah set aside certain aspects of God's revealed character and chose to worship God in a way that seemed most right to him, that pleased him the most. But this morning, we meet two more people who see the same thing as happening under the surface, and we can see it play out in similar but yet different ways. We won't spend time with the Levite this morning. Suffice it to say that you can just go back and you can go read in Exodus, you can read in Numbers. The Levites were never meant to be priests, okay? Only the sons of Aaron were supposed to be priests. The Levites had a particular place and a particular role. This Levite just went out looking for his own place and to do his own thing. And we'll find out what it was he actually came to do here in just a little bit when we talk more about Micah and the Danites and how he related to them. But we're going to spend our time with the Danites. And what I want you to see is that underneath what's going on here with the Danites is the same thing that was going on with Micah and it's the same thing that was going on with the Levite. They were not willing to be shaped by God as he has revealed himself to his people. They were unwilling to receive and surrender to God's word. We find Dan in the beginning of chapter 18 out looking for a place that he can dwell, an inheritance that he can call his own because it says here that no inheritance among the tribes had fallen to him. But here's the thing. If you've been with us through the story of the book of Judges, you might remember back to the beginning how it all started on the heels of the book of Joshua, where God had recounted for his people all that he had done for them in delivering them, promising them a land that he would give them, and then slicing off pieces of that land that were going to be allotted to each tribe, that they would go into the land allotted to them, God would be with them, and in obedience to God and confidence in who he is, they would overcome the people that were living in that land, and they would take that land that he had allotted to them as their inheritance, as their promise. Dan had been given a land. You can go back and look in Judges chapter 1, verse 34. When Dan went to the land that God had promised him, the Amorites were there, and they pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. 
for they didn't allow them to come down to the plain. Dan was promised an inheritance by God. But when he got there, just as God had said, he met resistance. Read the story in the, begin, in the end of Judges chapter 1 and Judges chapter 2. Dan proves to be the least faithful of all the tribes. God said, I've given you a land. I've given you a promise, an inheritance as to be yours. There will be resistance. It will be hard, but I will be with you. But when Dan came face to face with what obedience would cost him, what confidence in who God has been for him and who God will be for him when he goes into the land, face to face with the sacrifice and the demands of obedience, Dan decided that it was just too hard. It was just too difficult. So Dan quit. What God had said to him required too much sacrifice. What God had said was simply too demanding. So they decided there must be another land, there must be another place, there must be another way. There has to be something else out there because this is just too hard. And so they set out, looking for their own inheritance. But they already had an inheritance. They already had a promise from God. They simply had to believe that God is who he has said he is, and in faith in God, obey the word that he had gave them. You could say it this way, by faith, Dan was meant by God to obtain their inheritance. By faith, by confidence in God, confidence in who God had revealed himself to be, confidence in who God had continued to be, confidence in the promise that God had given them that he would go with them and the land would be theirs. By faith, by confidence in God, Dan was meant to claim his inheritance. But rather than being shaped by God as he has revealed himself, being shaped by God's word as he has spoken to his people, Dan chooses to try to reshape what God has said. Friends, the promise that God had given Dan, the promise of an inheritance from the hands of God, the same thing holds true for you and I. We have been promised a, a rich inheritance by God that comes to us by faith. We have been promised an inheritance, an eternal presence with God face to face, being made like him. We have been promised eternity in the presence of God. At his right hand is the fullness of all the joy you could ever imagine. He has promised it to us. And we receive the inheritance the same way that Dan was meant to receive his, by faith in who God is and what he has said. Jesus would even say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, has eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has inheritance, has the eternal life that God has promised. So here's the thing for some of us in here. This is where obedience and being shaped by God's revealed word gets too difficult. This is where we, like the tribe of Dan, find obedience just a little too demanding, the sacrifice a little too great. 
For some of us, this is where we begin to reform and reshape and try to chip away and fashion an image of God that seems more pleasing and more right in our own eyes. It's just too hard for our intellect to come to grips with the fact that we are required to believe in a first century Galilean man who claimed to be God himself who rose from the dead. And our hope for eternal life from the day that we die is faith and confidence in this man. You're just asking too much of me. When Jesus would look at his followers and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father. No one comes to this eternal life. No one comes into this inheritance except through and by me. This is where some people find the revealed word of God, the character of God, and the commands of God just too much, too difficult, too demanding. I would imagine for most of us in here, though, confidence in God to save us, confidence in God to forgive us, confidence in God to to hold us out until that promise comes to full fruition of eternal life in his presence isn't where we've stumbled, isn't where we've found obedience a bit too hard. I would imagine for most of us in here, we can have confidence in God to save us as he has revealed himself to us in his word and through his son, where we begin to say, "I I just think this is too demanding. Maybe this is just too difficult. It's in allowing God to be king. It's in allowing God to lead us. It's here that in our hearts we find ourselves looking and living out this desire to try to chip away at certain things and to to reshape and to reform who he is in a way that seems right in our own eyes. When we listen to the one who has saved us, the one who has rescued us, the one who has promised this eternal life to us, and he says, in the here and now, here's what I need you to do. I need you to forgive your enemies. I need you to love those who set out to hurt you. The way that you're understanding sexuality and your sexual behavior, I need you to adjust that and change that. The way that you understand how you spend the time that I've given you on this earth, how you utilize and spend the resources that I've given you on this earth, I need you to shift those things. This is where some of us come to the point of going, ah, it's just too hard. It's going to cost me too much. And like Dan, we say there must be another way. There must be another inheritance. There must be another place. There's got to be an easier route that I can take to get there. And when we're doing that, we're just engaging in the project of fashioning and forming and shaping a God who seems right in our own eyes rather than allowing him to shape and to form us. The tribe of Dan, just like Micah, chose not to receive God's word, to surrender to it by faith, to not allow themselves to be shaped and formed by God's word and for their lives to be a continuous outpouring of confidence in God as he has revealed himself to be. That's the first marker of this respectable idolatry that's working itself out in our hearts. But here's the thing. When we're unwilling to allow the voice of God, when we're unwilling to allow allow the revelation of God to shape and to form us, who God has revealed himself to be in his word and through his son, when we don't allow that to shape us, I promise you another voice is doing the shaping. When we don't allow God's word to shape our hearts, we are allowing some other voice to do the shaping and to do the satisfying. 
And that's the second marker of this respectable idolatry in the heart of God's people. A willingness to only listen to voices that tell us what we want to hear. You see it with Micah, you see it with the Levite, you see it with the Danites. When Micah, when he disobeyed God's word, when he decided that he could try to worship God in a way that seemed right to him rather than the way that God had actually said he was to be worshipped, and he found this Levite, and instead of recognizing that this Levite, according to God's word, wasn't where he was supposed to be, he actually ordains him as a priest doing something he was never meant to do and that Micah had no authority to do. So when Micah tries to worship God according to his own desires, and that was most convenient to him, and he hires this Levite to do something he wasn't supposed to do, Do you think he paid that Levite to tell him things he didn't want to hear? Now you think about the story like a human. He found this Levite and in his own wandering, in his own willingness now to be a priest, recognizes that he has no, uh, what's a good word for it? He has no commitment and loyalty to God as God has revealed himself to be. And when Micah hires him and pays him to be a priest, Do you think he's paying him with the expectation that the priest is going to tell him things he doesn't want to hear? That the priest is somehow now going to call this man to repentance? That he's going to turn the heart of this man and his household back to God's word as God has revealed it to his people? The same word that he's violating with his own practices and habits? No. And here's the thing. When the Danites came upon the house of Micah, And they met this Levite and they asked the Levite, how'd you get here? And the Levite tells them what Micah's doing. They recognize the deal too. Oh, we found a guy who's a supposed man of God. Let's get him to, let's get him to pray a prayer of blessing on what it is we're doing. They know this Levite is saying whatever needs to be said because he's getting paid. So verse 5, they inquire of God, ask him to inquire of God. Please ask him. We need to know whether the journey that we're on will succeed. And so the priest says to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of God. Rather than pointing them back to God's word as God had revealed it to his people, back to even the land that God had promised them, this priest tells them exactly what they want to hear. And in the name of God, this false priest blesses the disobedience of God's people. So that now in their mind and in their heart, what they're doing actually seems justified. See, when you and I are unwilling to receive God's word, you will always find a voice that will tell you what you want to hear. There was a guy that was in my life early on in college. It was a part of what God was doing in my my heart to, to bring me to a place of repentance. But he used to always say, and this wasn't talking about just spiritual things. This was just a life lesson. He used to always tell us, whenever you're looking for someone to lower the bar of expectation in your life, you'll always find someone next to you to do it. Whenever you want the bar lowered in life, you'll have no problem finding someone willing to lower it for you. When you and I are unwilling to allow our lives and our hearts to be shaped by God's word as he has revealed it to us, you will find another voice to satisfy and shape you. And it will be a voice that will tell you everything that you want to hear. There will always be a voice in life championing your personal sense of happiness, what seems right in your eyes as greater or more important than your growth and holiness in Christ's likeness. Always, it will always be there. 
If what you want is someone to tell you that what seems right in your eyes will make you the happiest and that's what God really wants rather than your growth in Christ-likeness and holiness, someone will always be there to tell you it's okay. You'll have no problem going somewhere else in this city even and finding someone who has been set aside to teach and expose God's word to tell you that what is most important to God right now is your personal present sense of health, wealth, and prosperity. If that's what you think God wants for you and that's what you've shaped as being right in your eyes, you will find somebody to tell you. If what seems right in your eyes right now is someone telling you that God never intended for marriage to be between one man and one woman for life, You'll have no problem finding somebody to tell you, even in this city, standing in a place just like the place I stand, to tell you what seems right in your own eyes. If you want someone to tell you that forgiveness isn't necessary in this life, you will find someone to tell you. Paul had to look at his protege, Timothy, write him, write him a letter. And he told him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's been happening ever since the beginning of the story. If what you want is someone to tickle your ears and tell you that what you have shaped to seem right in your own eyes is indeed what God has said, you will find someone to tell you. It's always there especially if you pay them enough. That's actually what happens in the story. If you skip a little bit down into chapter 18, verse 18, you'll see that the Danites, they came back to Micah's house. And they decided that they were going to take what Micah had made and the Levite that Micah had now made a priest. And you see in verse 18, they came to Micah's house, they took the carved image, they took the ephod, they took the household gods, they took the metal image. And the priest at first tried to stop him. He said, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Now listen to this. Is it better for you to be the priest to a house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe and a clan of Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. For the right price, if what you really want is someone to tell you that what seems right in your eyes is what God really wants over and against your personal growth in Christ-likeness and holiness, you'll always find it. So the Levite goes with the Danites and he takes the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and he went with the people. Friend, that voice that will only tell you what it is you really want to hear, you need to realize that that voice is a deceiving and a destructive voice. Don't allow yourself to be fooled into thinking that it's actually coming from God. We've had the privilege in a cohort that I've been a part of to work with a counselor in Philadelphia. Her name is Diane Langberg. And one thing she told us when we met with her, and I think she's written it in one of her books, is that she said, don't be mistaken. You will always choose to believe in a reassuring lie over and against an utterly inconvenient and disturbing truth. If what you want is someone to tell you that what seems right in your eyes is actually what God desires, you will always choose to believe in a reassuring lie over against an utterly inconvenient and disturbing truth. 
And the reality of it is God's word cuts down to the place of exposing what it is our hearts are desperate to believe in. God's word is an illuminating thing. It always exposes, when we surrender ourselves to it, the places in our heart where we have taken something else into the heart and put it in front of our eyes and our, our continuous outpouring of worship is being misdirected. It always exposes those places to us. It always confronts our arrogance. It always confronts our pride. It always confronts our desires and our attempts to reshape and reform God. It's uncomfortable. Because it deals with us as sinners. But yet it never leaves us there. God's word, as we surrender to it and allow it to shape us, always points us to salvation and forgiveness through repentance and faith in Jesus. And that's why it's so essential that you and I, day in and day out, allow ourselves to be shaped by God's voice, by God's word, by God's revelation of himself. But now in in the story, with the pseudo-blessing of God and their own personal desires and their own disobedience, the Danites are feeling confident that what they're doing is indeed what God would want. They set off, and what you're going to see now and what we're going to look at for a minute in the story, and then next week you'll see play out on even a bigger scale. What you're going to see is the fruit of this kind of respectable idolatry playing itself out in the lives of God's people when God's people no longer allow God's word to shape them. Throughout the book of Judges, it's been forgetting God. Right, No longer living out of the fruit of who God is and has been for them and promises to be for them. Right Now they're just picking up different language. Now in choosing to not be shaped by God any longer, to be shaped by voices that only reassure what seems right in the eyes, pursuing those things that we take into our heart and set in front of our faces, particular fruit in the way we live is going to come out. And you're going to start to see that downward spiral now. So Dan sets off with this Levite with the the idols. And verse 7, back to verse 7 in chapter 18. We'll pick up the story and you'll you'll see what happens here. These these spies depart and they come to a town called Laish. And they saw the people who were there. They lived in security after a manner of the Sidonians. The Sidonians, let's put it this way for you you to understand. The Sidonians were white-collar people. It wasn't agriculture. It wasn't manufacturing. It was business. It was trading. They made their money in in what we would think of as a a white-collar profession. So these spies, they they come after and they see this town, and this town is a a white-collar town. They call it quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that's in the earth and possessing wealth. And then they realize how far they are from the Sidonians, and they don't have dealings with anyone. So they are a quiet, unsuspecting, not warrior-like, not manufacturing, not blue-collar-like people. And where they're located, there isn't anyone in a close proximity that could come in and help them or rescue them. They're isolated. So these spies, verse 8, they come back to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, and their brothers said to him, what do you report? And they say, arise and let us go up against them. For we've seen the land and behold, it's very good. And, and will you do nothing? Don't be slow. Go and enter, possess the land. And as soon as you go, you'll come to an unsuspecting people. The land's spacious for us. Now listen to what they say. For God has given it into your hands. A place where there's no lack of anything that's in the earth. Sounds similar to the story of the spies that went and looked at the land that God had promised in the first place. 
all the spies that were sent out like two came back and said the land is full of people we can't conquer but two said no this is the land that god had promised we can do this here in this story the spies come back and say the land's soft the people are quiet unsuspecting easy pickings the amorites they fought too hard not these guys this will be our place in verse 27, if you skip down, they've taken the Levite, they've taken the idols, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. No longer being shaped by God's word, no longer allowing themselves to be shaped by how God had revealed himself and who they were in light of that. Now, listening only to voices that will tell them exactly what they want to hear, they have the nerve to say, this must be what God is giving into our hands. This must have been the land that God meant. He didn't mean that place where the Amorites were that fought back so hard. This must mean what God had meant in the beginning. You know, he promised us a land. He told us we were going to have a place. This is close enough, isn't it? Here's the thing. Go look at a map sometime this week. Find one that talks about this time in in the Bible. What you'll find is that Laish, it falls outside the boundaries of what's known as the promised land. The place that God had said he was giving to his people, that he carved out all the allotments. The Danites, rather than conquering the land that God had given them in confidence in who God is because they were being shaped by God's revealed word, chose to slink away in cowardice and attack an unsuspecting people who were outside the land that God had promised. They committed this horrific atrocity, and they called it the will of God. They called it the blessing of God. This must be what God wanted, because the priest said what we're doing is being blessed by God. But God didn't tell them to do it. A disobedient, lying Levite did. And so no longer being willing to receive God's word, be shaped by God's word, listening only to voices that tell them what they want to hear, they have deceived themselves so much that they now think what they're doing in disobedience is exactly what God would want them to do. And because they're successful against a quiet and unsuspecting people, they assume God gave them victory. When all they did in the whole process was slander the glory of God amongst the people that they were meant to be a light and a blessing to. That's what happens respectable idolatry, whatever you want to call it. In the end, the continuous outpouring of our life that gets misdirected does nothing but lead to the slandering of the glory of God to the actions of our life. You and I were were meant, created, to worship God with our life in confidence and faith and joy based on who he is as he has revealed himself to be. But this misdirected worship leaves us slandering that glory, and it leaves you and I chasing a salvation of our own making, a salvation that can ultimately never truly save. One of the most disturbing parts of the entire story is back in chapter 17, verse 13. Consequences, the impact of this kind of idolatry. Micah says, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me 
because I have a Levite as priest. I mean, what's underneath? So the, the markers are there. They, they show us that something is happening. But when you dig under that, why is it actually happening? What's actually driving this? What's actually motivating even this kind of respectable or tolerable idolatry? Well, it's no different. We talked about it last week. It's no different than any other idolatry at its core. It's always an effort on our part to do something that would put us in a place where God had to serve us. Micah thought that he had to get all these certain things. He had portrayed God in a way that seemed right to him and made these different images that reflected the aspects of God that were right in his eyes, that seemed to fit what he wanted. Rather than worshiping God as he had revealed, he decided he'd do it in a more convenient way. And now he's got this Levite. And you know what? I can make him a priest because he doesn't seem committed to God's word either. And now that I've got a priest and I've got an ephod, I've got a shrine, I've got these images that reflect certain things about God rather than his word as he's revealed it, now God has to bless me. I've done everything I think I'm supposed to do. Now God must be obligated to bless me. Now I know I have favor from God because I've done all the right things. We don't do that, do we? Underneath it all, the unwillingness to allow ourselves to be shaped by God's word, the desire to listen only to voices that tell us what seem right in our own eyes and in our own ears, underneath it all, we don't think that if we can just do the right things, I say the right prayer and I use the right words and I get it in the right order, if I join the right groups, if I fight the right injustice, if I busy myself with the right things, if I know the right people, if I get away from the certain people, if I do whatever it is, 10,000 different ways we do it, underneath it all is a desire to put us in a position where we think God is obligated now to bless us. We've shaped him into an image and likeness that we can control and can manage. And now because we've done everything we think we're supposed to do, we can rest assured of his favor. The problem is respectable idolatry. It's still idolatry. And in the end, any God of our own making, even if we have convinced ourselves that it's the one true and living God, any God of our own making can never ultimately save us. Which is what makes the story of Micah in this whole thing so tragic personally. Verse 24 of chapter 18. The Danites have come. They've taken Micah's ephod. They've taken his little carvings, his images. They've taken his priest. They've taken everything he thought he did that would put God at his disposal that would put him in a place of assurance that indeed God did love him and was going to bless him. All that Micah had leaned into for the assurance of a right relationship with God because it was something of his own making, it's now been taken from him. And you get verse 24, one of the saddest verses in the entire story, but one of the most exposing realities of this kind of false worship. Micah looks at the Danites and says, you took my gods, the ones I made in the priest, and you went away. And what do I have left? See, as long as he had all those things and things were going well for him, how confident was Micah? I was doing all the right things. God must love me. Look, he even brought me a Levite. He brought me someone I could make as my own priest. His confidence, his assurance, man, it was through the roof. But the minute those things that he put in his place of the worship of the one true and living God are taken away, Micah's left with nothing but despair. Nothing but despondency. 
And he's left literally slumping away from the rest of the story. This is where all idolatry, whatever you want to call it, we can be creative and call it respectable, we can be creative and call it unrespectable, we can be creative and call it cultural, whatever you want to call it. This is where all idolatry ends. Misplaced worship leaves us in despair, chasing after a salvation that can never truly save. As we saw last week, David Foster Wallace so poignantly said, in the end, any of it will ultimately eat you alive. So keep yourself, John said, from idols. Friends, this is why here, if you've been with us for any extended period of time, or if you haven't, if you're new with us, hopefully you'll hear it over and over and over again. We're so committed to cultivating gospel-shaped, gospel-centered, grace-driven people. Idolatry, respectable idolatry, whatever you want to call it, always leaves us in despair and ruin. It's only the good news of what God has done for us through his son, continues to do for us now, and has promised to be for us for eternity. It's only the good news of the gospel that leaves us free, that promises you any real hope and any real taste of eternal joy. God has declared the good news that our acceptance in his eyes, is not based on you doing the right combination of activities. Our own version of Micah, confident that now God is going to bless him, confident now that he's right in the God that he has made, confident now that God's going to favor him because he's got all the right stuff or done all the right things. The gospel declares that our confidence in God's promise to us, God's favor to us, God's blessing to us now and forever is not based on what we do. The gospel declares that anyone who repents of their sin, repents of their own idolatry, and by faith believes upon Jesus as King and Savior, it's then that you find yourself accepted and favored in the eyes of God based on what Jesus has done in your place, not upon what you can do. You don't have to do all these right things to earn God's favor. The gospel declares that only one person in all of human history has ever obeyed God's law perfectly. Only one person in all of human history has ever walked the face of this earth and their life been a continuous outpouring of joyful delight and worship of the one true and living God. And he did that and then died in your place for your idolatry and your sin. It's through Jesus that you and I can know that we now indeed do have favor with God. That was the question that Micah was after. How can I know that God is going to bless me? How can I know that I have favor with God? How can I know that everything's going to be right? Well, you and I can know that now and for eternity, we have favor in the eyes of God because our favor comes from what God has done for us through his Son. Which means for you and I, the way to secure that blessing and that favor, it's not by trying to do more things. It's not by figuring out what our own ephod and our own Levite and our own shrine and our own things now are. The way you and I can have the assurance of this blessing and this favor is through repentance. It's through recognizing our own attempts at reshaping God into an image and likeness that seems right in our own eyes and confessing that, owning it, confessing it, and turning from it. And through the grace of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, receiving him as king and savior, 
It's by being shaped day in and day out now by God's revelation of who he has been for us and who he continues to be for us and who he promises to be for us as he's revealed it in his word. It's by allowing him to cultivate us and shape us and form us. See, in the end, whatever you want to call this, idolatry, religion, whatever you might want to call it, in the end, underneath it all, all of it is an effort to point back to ourselves. All of it is an effort to reflect back on what we've done, what we've achieved, what we want. But here's the thing. The good news of the gospel is that God has won our deliverance for us through his son. And the end of all right worship, the end of all continuous outpouring of our lives is meant now to focus all attention, not back on ourselves, but on him. Who he is and what he's done. It's an unbelievable thought, but God has made this all possible. The very thing that he created us for and commands of us, he has made it possible by his grace through the work of his son for us to actually do the very thing he made us for. Friends, we get a chance this morning to respond to God's grace by by turning our, our focus and our attention, even tangibly and physically, to the victory, to the deliverance that he won for us as we prepare to receive communion. In just a moment, as the music continues and you have a chance to reflect, you're going to be invited as God's people to come. And when you come, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that piece of bread and as you dip it in that cup, I want you to let it remind you that your idolatry, whatever you call it, respectable or not, whatever effort you have made in your heart to reshape and reform God into an image that seems right to you, to listen to voices that would encourage your own disobedience from God's revealed will for you, it was your idolatry and your sin that cost him his life. It was your idolatry that put him on the cross. It was for that that his body was broken and his blood was shed. And apart from his sacrifice in your place from your sin, you would spend eternity apart from the presence of God. And as you take that bread and you dip it in that cup, you take that body, you remember that blood, remember that it was shed by the grace of God for you. What you will hold in your hand, you'll, you'll have between your fingers, you'll, you'll dip into a cup and take it into your body. It's a reminder now of how God has already blessed you. And it's the assurance, the confidence assurance that he'll never let you go. How can I know? How can I know that God has blessed me? Friends, this morning, let communion be a reminder to you of the assurance that we have by the grace of God through the work of his son in our place. Let me pray for us and then we'll have a chance to do this very thing. Father, we thank you for bringing us together again as your people. God, we know your word is often uncomfortable and exposing Lord, but it's uncomfortable and exposing for our good because it shows us where in our own heart, in our own mind, in our own lives, we have, we have tried to reshape you to fit something that seems more appealing to our own personal desires, the desires of those around us. Lord, let us see those things this morning for the first time or the first time in a long time and let us confess, turn, repent of those things. 
Lord, it will take the work of your Holy Spirit this morning to show us your glory in the face of your Son and for our, our hearts to be more satisfied and delighted in who you are for us than in what other things hold out to us. So Lord, I ask that you would do the miracle that only you can do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.